and this is coming from somebody who wrote a book about how to help people do this, you can't learn it from a book. I'm undermining my own darn book sales, right? <laughs> but but the, the essence here is that you have to earn the ability to suffer and tolerate discomfort. You can't learn it. You have to earn it. And so whilst the, the, the textbooks and the articles, we can learn some strategies to practice, but that doesn't actually substitute for putting yourself environments where you are, all you want to do in, in psych terms is you have thoughts of escape, right? Oh my God, I'm never doing this again. Who talked me into this? This is the last time I, you know, you're swearing at them under your breath as you're only two miles in. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast with your blacksmiths, Tara O'Brien and Ron Duran Jr. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. It's time to harden up. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. In the 1990s, then President Bush coined the term the decade of the brain. Uh, it's my belief that although we've made a lot of progress in, in that time since then in, in understanding how the brain works, uh, I think we, we really are not scratching the surface yet. And I'm going to coin the term neuro decade. I think the 2020s is going to be the neuro decade. And what I mean by that is we're going to really start to, to kind of hone in on how the brain works and how can we use it to be our best selves? You know, you hear a lot of terms that are being thrown around, uh, neuromarketing, neuroleadership, neuroparenting, you know, on and on. And so we see this already happening. Now, there's, there's certainly plenty of evidence or, or uh, criticism of, of the, the fact that maybe that's pseudoscience and, and maybe we're not using it the right way. But I'm a, of the firm belief that the, if, we can, if we can start to... Uh, understand how our brains work better, we are going to perform at a higher level. And so this podcast is going to go deep into that idea of how does your brain work? Now, I'm, I'm going to warn you, we're going to go, we're going to go a little bit deep and you're going to hear terms that maybe you haven't heard before. Uh, but hang with us because this is going to be a lot of fun. And I think you're going to, if you, if you don't learn from this podcast, I will be uh, very surprised because I did. And, and I know Tara did as well. So let's, uh, let's take a look at what, uh, what we have to offer for this week. You mind if we end up using the video? Absolutely fine. fine. Yeah. Obviously awesome. I'm naked from the waist down, but if you that's can just kind of cut, cut me there. It's the way you shoot the news, uh, my friend. <laughs> yeah. That's the way you do it. I'm excited because I get to talk to somebody where I don't have to, you know, I don't have to be formal. <laughs> right. Are you ever? Today, well, you know, sometimes you have guests where you're like, okay, just make sure you don't say anything, you know, wrong. This guest is not quite in that category, and you'll understand why as we, as we get moving here. Today's guest is Simon Marshall, married to Leslie Patterson, who was our guest on podcast number two. If you haven't listened to that uh, podcast, please check it out because it was a lot of fun. So he is founder and coach of uh, and coach of, of Braveheart Coaching. He's co-author of the the book The Brave Athlete, and he also is co-host of the Xterra podcast. So all those co's that you hear are with his lovely wife Leslie. Simon has a great background. He's got he's got a bachelor's degree in sports science, uh, a master's degree in kinesiology, and then a PhD in sport and exercise psychology. So he's got quite a little collection of degrees there. And I got to be honest, when I met Simon for the first time in person, uh, I was being coached by Leslie. 
and we Rinko's them out at their Sufferfest training camp, and we immediately hit it off. I felt like when I met Simon, it was like, okay, I've met one of the Jedi masters of sports psychology. Oh, and, how disillusioned you yeah, were. Yeah. How naive I, you were, Ron. <laughs> and, and unbeknownst to him, I, I said, okay, I'm going to be his Padawan. And so I kind of, I was like a sponge as we did the camp, soaking up as much as I could from Simon. And we've kept in touch over the years. And I would say he probably doesn't realize that I've learned a few things from him as we've gone along. I'm excited about this. And you, you'll get to know Simon is pretty casual and off the cuff, and he'll pretty much say what's on his mind. So this is going to be a fun podcast to kind of dig into. And I promise I won't, I won't swear. Um, <laughs> no, I know that. Hey, hey, we got through a whole podcast with your wife, and I don't think she said one curse uh, word. So she was I think on, I'll challenge she, that one. Yeah, did, 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 she, did she let one slip? I don't remember. That one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's where we, podcast number two is where we lo- lost our, our uh, rating. Let me open it up with this, Simon. I, I often like to give, as you know, I'm a professor at the University of Colorado, and I touch on a lot of these neuroscience topics. And one of the first things I like to tell my students is, you are all lazy. I do this for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's, it's kind of my sadistic sense of humor to watch the look on their face like, I can't believe you just called me lazy, which some of them are, you can almost tell they're offended. And then secondly, I want to illustrate the point, and I think maybe, Simon, you can elaborate on this, that in essence, we are all lazy. Would you agree with that? A loaded question, to be honest, <laughs> let's face it. I all mean, right, all right. Unpack yeah, it for yeah. us. Unpack it. Yeah, I think lazy in the sense that we like to take shortcuts. So you could reframe that as efficient. You know, there you go. I, I think there you that go. the human brain is wired to be, you know, very efficient. In other words, because of the just the there's a huge metabolic burden, of course, of having a busy brain. It's very glucose hungry, particularly our frontal cortex, and and it isn't just metabolically we're trying to save, literally save energy. But I just think many of the the processes, the mental process we go through to reach conclusions, would take too darn long to be really effective or useful for us in our everyday worlds. The brain loves shortcuts. And when they work for us, we call them healthy habits, right? And when they, when they work against us, we call them sort of bad habits or just annoying habits or any other the, the habits that you can sort of point at your spouse or your partner at for getting frustrated at. So that our brains are wired to do that all the time. And, and to try and fight against doing that is sort of to fight against biology. I think what the key is to figure out where those shortcuts are sending us astray and making us make bad decisions and when we can also rely on them a bit more and not overthink. Which kind of, you know, this podcast, one of the things that we talk about and we kind of use as a tagline or mantra is do hard things. And so with all of what you just said, how do we, how do we do hard things? And is that, I think you would say that's useful, at least in certain you know situations, to do hard things. I mean, a lot of your athletes do a lot of hard things. I know that from firsthand experience. So, so is it a matter of just deciding when is it beneficial to do this hard thing and when is it uh, beneficial to take the shortcut? Yeah, I think that so one principle that underlies not just sort of the way our brains changes in like neuroplasticity, right? This notion of our brains are neurally changing in response to being in new environments, but it it works in fitness as well. And this is the overload principle, right? So that in order for something to improve, to grow, it might be a metaphorical growth here, it has to be stressed and recover. 
And that phenomenon is really also a little a sort of clues to how we get the brain to change as well. And so it comes as no surprise that if you want to be better at coping with the hard stuff, the suck, the difficult times, that you have to make sure that you are forcing yourself, if it's not involuntarily imposed on you already, deal with and encounter hard stuff. That's really just as you wouldn't be expected to be prepared for an Ironman by only ever running 5K and riding 15 miles. It just You just wouldn't be prepared. We have to stress the brain and the body to do that. So the principle, and, and obviously the tons of now psychological research and neuroscience research is really shoring this philosophy up. It isn't just the sort of the, the clip round your ear talk you give to your kids, like this would be good for you, it's character building. We know it's actually good science now. And we've probably, this is a side conversation, we've probably for the last sort of, at least the last few generations of children, starting with parents, parents in the 60s and 70s raised the whole generations of children to shy them and keep them hidden from stress or discomfort. And I think ultimately we're doing them a gross disservice by, by doing that. Wow, we could go right into parenting right now at the beginning oh. of the podcast. <laughs> He's rubbing his hands together. He's excited. I want to pick apart the concept of being lazy and you're talking about neuroplasticity and kind of changing our behaviors with doing hard things. So, you know, Ron's a, a big time runner. If he's running and he's pushing himself and doing 100 mile races, or, you know, some of our guests have hiked some of the seven summits, and that is pushing away from being physically lazy, and you're doing hard things. Does that also transfer over into, say, a week later, when either one of them want to go do a big TED talk? It um, does. Yeah, I think so, Tara. You're, you're right there. I mean, we don't know that there the simply aren't the studies that have looked at whether ultra running translates directly into coping with sort of fairly acute stressful environments like you know big talks or what have you but but the biological pathways of how this stuff happens supports that conclusion and it and obviously you know one of the first myths that i spend my you know professional life dispelling is that the mind and body are separate entities when really the mind and body are, are part and parcel of the same thing, the mind is body. And it's, in fact, there's, a, there's a, a great researcher called Samuel Makora, Sam Makora, University of Bologna, who studies resilience and neuro, the neuroscience of stress and coping, particularly among athletes. And he often talks about how the mind or thoughts in particular are just emergent pr properties of brain physiology. So our bodies and the state that our bodies are in has a big a role to play in the thoughts and feelings that we get. And then obviously the stressful environments that we're in physically uh, and obviously having to cope with those mentally at the same time. We are getting structural changes in how we think about challenge, what we think about our self-efficacy, our ability to persist under very specific circumstances, resilience, and so on. And so these things, whether it happens, you know, probably doesn't happen from, you know, Saturday to Tuesday, but we do know that if you've ever, and, and anecdotally, people who could, can relate to this, if you've ever done something that at the start, at the outset, you thought, there's no way I can do this, or I'm really sort of doubtful I'm going to pull this off. And for some one in five, one in 10 chance that you do actually pull it off, you, you seem to sort of draw a, a new line in the sand of what you think that you can do. And that alone can be really powerful because that's about self-confidence and self-efficacy and the, the, just the showing up on the start line. It takes a lot of self-confidence and a lot of self-efficacy. And then once you're in, you can get that dopamine snowball rolling and you kind of 
build through hard things. So yeah, they're, they're, I think they're, they're part and parcel of the same thing. So like, if you want to be better or be more sort of better used or adaptive to dealing with chronic stress or acute or chronic stress, phys- putting yourself under physical duress uh, is also a good technique for doing so. Mm, and this is a fun one. I've learned so many lessons from my endurance career, whether it was Ironman or ultra running. And, you know, inside, I think to myself, I, I would love everybody to learn the lessons I've learned in those very physically demanding things. I know some of the, you know, some of the clients I have, they have no desire to do what I've done. And so can we how do, you know, what's your answer to that? Can we learn how to develop that part of our brain without physically, you know, stressing it? I feel like the, the stressful, the physical environment is as close as we're going to get to a survival situation. And it really imprints the brain mm-hmm. in a way that I have not been able to replicate, you know, outside of that. What would be your thoughts yeah. on that, Simon? Well, this is getting meta now, Ron, because this is this. this you're asking for is there a, a kind of a quicker shortcut to things? Is and there we started a pill? talking about a lazy brain, right? And you've yeah, exactly yeah. proved my point. You want a short silver bullet? There. You- yeah, I, I mean, I think that there are things that that we can do, and some of the newer research that's coming out, particularly around certain structures in our brain that regulate discomfort or or. or effort-related cues that also process emotional distress. And one of those that I know that you're really interested in as am I is the anterior cingulate cortex. And I think that when you think of some of these structures and really the metaphor that we often give with athletes is akin to a bank account, right? That I'm writing a check to run a a 50K or in my case, a 5K or a 50-mile bike ride. And that account that I'm writing that from is the same account that processes emotional distress and emotional discomfort. So if I've got, if I've had an argument with Leslie or got a parking ticket or we've got any worry basically that I might have is coming from the same metaphorical bank account as the the effort bank account to push hard in physical uh, efforts because emotional and physical discomfort and pain in brain world are indistinguishable. They're processed by the same structures, then some of the neural pathways are the same and so on. And so the, the reason I say that is because it gives us clues about how we might get better at one without doing the other. So for example, some of the newer studies have come out, they've not been yet completely conclusive. That's not a question I think of the science per se. It might just be the, the small studies, the nature of them and how we've conducted them and so on. But if I can cognitively fatigue you, for example, if I can do things, give you a task that really tire you out mentally, and one of those is called the Stroop test in psychology. There's a bunch of others, but think of them like, you know, you're staring at a screen and you're pointing or putting a pointer when you see a click on a screen. It's mind-numbing work, boring as heck. And then I ask you to go out and do a, an FTP test or a, a test of it to exhaustion or some big physical task. Lo and behold, your performance suffers because of it, because you've been cognitively pre-fatigued, even though I'm just fatiguing your eyes and your frontal cortex versus your muscle, your, you know, your legs and your lungs and your arms and all the other things. So, so there is this relationship between the two. And there's some other data, albeit fairly still thin on the ground, that, that folks who are excellent at coping with physical discomfort have also have a tendency to have have to had to cope with more emotional discomfort in their life. So for example, one study found that the incidence of trauma, of childhood trauma in elite cyclists was two to three times higher than it was in non-elite, sorry, elite but non 
still professional, but not at the top, you know, one or two percent in that world. So these people had anterior cingulate cortexes that looked actually different, even though that they had done the same training volume, the same. And what was it about those athletes? And the, the theory is that, and we don't wish this on anybody, of course, to have to have endured you know, physical or emotional abuse throughout your childhood. But one of the, the consequences of that, the neuroplasticity of the brain and effort to cope and adapt in response to being in these really harsh environments is probably an ability to tolerate physical discomfort better than the guy or the girl next to you. And so, again, this isn't, what do we do with this information? We're not going to say, okay, you know, if you want your kids to get an athletic scholarship, you start beating them early. But it does, it does mean that we do the, the role of adverse experience in childhood. And even if you're not a kid, as an adult, the role of adverse experience to make you all around sort of hardier physically and, and mentally is, is a pretty good lesson to live by. And now I'm so curious to ask you, how do you fit that into what we're going through right now? Because I, I think it was on a podcast with Rich Davini, and I know we talked about it with a former guest on this podcast, the, the concept of adaptability. And not everybody is super adaptable, but after a year, and it'll end up being longer, of course, after a year of the entire planet going through a pandemic, let alone the other 17 traumas that everybody's mm -hmm. suffering right now, we're all going to become a lot more adaptable, or so everyone thinks. What are your thoughts on that? I, I, I agree. And obviously, you know, when we, we, we often talk about, particularly in the science of coping, and what coping is and oh how did you cope you've done so well to cope i can't believe how well you cope and a lot of people will answer that if you speak to athletes or pe speak to people who've been in extreme trauma how they got out of situations that many of us would have thought oh my god i just rolled over and that would have been it for me and they say well i've I got i got no option but to cope right i have to that's all that there is to do. so when you start to expose yourself to stress chronic stress repeatedly and i'm not talking about chronic stress in the sense psychologically chronic, chronic stress but but stresses that are lasting and now a year and it will last longer, that there is some beneficial outcome to that that doesn't in any way outweigh the negative stuff that's happened. So I'm, this is not to be confused with saying we'll be better for going through corona. We won't. But what I am saying is that there is a, there is a perspective here to say that we'll come out of this with new understandings or new levels of tolerance or new levels of inquisitiveness or passion or stick to itness with things that we have missed or that we took for granted. And, and that as a concept of, which is really what the scientists talk about, a deficit model of happiness. And the deficit model of happiness is simply that happiness like as a psychological, psycho-emotional construct one of the things that is the biggest predictor of who feels it and when is when is is the fact that you haven't had it or you've been without it right so the deficit model if you want this is why the study of whether it's lottery winners or people who have m many resources at their disposal they lose the ability to get pleasure out of things right it's called hedonic adaptation the brain is wired to build up a tolerance to pleasure and if everything is at your disposal anytime because you have the material or financial resources or whatever have you, your brain eventually adapts to that. So you end up feeling sort of as though yeah, nothing really does it for me. If you, you, might, you might know people like this or if you've got friends who have, have never wanted for anything, it might be harder to hold their attention or they seem quite fickle and they dabble a lot, but they never actually stick to anything for very much long, very long. Or they always seem to be somewhat discontent. 
But you take someone who hasn't had much or they've had some, you know, some career ending, some profound traumatic moment in their life that may be irreversible. Their their levels of happiness often not just go back to the pre-trauma, but exceed it than they had before because there's nothing like having something taken away or the threat of being taken away to make you feel as though that you uh, appreciate it more. And so that, again, I think that also is converging on this conclusion that adversity is good it isn't the suck that makes it good. Of course, no one is going to protect. Some people are going to say, oh, I love the pain. And, uh, but if you're honest, like, it sucks. Like, if you've, as Ron knows all too well. I thought Leslie loved it. She does, I was no, just going to call her out, but I thought, it, no. <laughs> even, even, even Leslie, during the, and I'm not talking about, you know, the coffee rides or the, when you're the intense, but those moments where you're all in, all out, and it's hurting. Yes, you can mitigate that hurt to a certain extent by using some strategies, but it isn't really that the benefit of doing that comes afterwards, not the during of it, right? There's, no one likes to feel as though that they're in pain and you're getting some big psychic, psychic understanding of the world during the discomfort. It's afterwards that we tend to have those responses. And in fact, on our, on our podcast, I, I came across, we had an adventurer called Paula Reed, and she's an adventure psychologist, a fascinating gal in the UK. And she studies the psychology of, of like adventurers, people who really do like, you know, skiing to the South Pole, going to climbing Everest, people who do kind of serious expeditions, adventures. And, and she found that this was a fairly critical piece when she did some of her qualitative interview work with these people going knowingly into the unknown. And so that, that going into a risky situation that you've got the skills to be able to adapt on the fly, but you don't know what you're getting. And that would terrify most people. And, and in the adventuring community, there's something called a fun scale. I don't know if we've mentioned this when we've chatted before, Ron, but adventure scale is, these, is quite a fun. So a type one adventure or type one fun is when it's fun during the event and it's fun afterwards to look back on right so going to disneyland is type one fun it's great during it and then we look back on all the great times we had type one fun type two fun is when it's pretty miserable during it but you look back on it fondly and this is where most competitive sport fits in right there's not there's not many people smiling a mile mile 20 of an ironman run but afterwards and signing up for races, the, the cycle gets. So the ability with our hindsight to look back on those experiences as beneficial, type two fun, simply really profound. And then type three fun is when it's miserable during it and it's miserable to look back on it. So these are the sorts of examples where we're really hoping to avoid at all costs, even though Paula Reed would argue that you need a few type three examples in your life experiences to appreciate the type twos and at least to know, well, at least I'm never going to do that again because I never want to feel like that again. I never want to blah, blah, blah. So I like that idea of this, this, this special sort of zone of discomfort during for benefits after is a good principle to think about how this can build physical and mental resilience. If you're going to go to a, a training camp with Leslie and Simon, it's, it's type three fun. Type three fun, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm kidding. I don't want to scare people off. It's hard, but, but I, would, I would say it's type two fun. But So Simon, you know, I've been pretty honest with, with our listeners on this, this program that part of my kind of transformation was I became soft, lazy, sitting on the couch, not doing anything really hard. And I was just 
quite honestly, avoiding it at all costs. And, and so for that person, I mean, you just talked about this idea that, that getting out there and, and embracing that adversity can make you stronger. What, what would you say to that? I mean, if I am a listener and I'm saying, hey, I want to get, I want to get tougher. I've been sitting on the couch for a long time and now I want to embrace that, that adversity. Any, any advice on that? Yeah, I would say, and, and this is coming from somebody who wrote a book about how to help people do this. You can't learn it from a book. I'm undermining my own darn book sales, right? <laughs> but but the, the essence here is that you have to earn the ability to suffer and tolerate discomfort. You can't learn it. You have to earn it. And so whilst the, the, the textbooks and the articles, we can learn some strategies to practice, but that doesn't actually substitute for putting yourself environments where you are, all you want to do in, in psych terms is you have thoughts of escape, right? Oh my God, I'm never doing this again. Who talked me into this? This is the last time I, you know, you're swearing at them under your breath as you're only two miles in. So that those experiences are, and this is one of the this is one of the, the the tactics that we have athletes practice is that you look for moments of suck, moments where all you want to do is climb off, soft pedal, go home, moan, bitch, whatever it is, and you see them op- as opportunities, opportunities to say this is, and we have a little joke, standing joke in our world about we yeah we talk about the anterior cingulate cortex, but because it's shaped a little bit like a sausage, so we talk about sausage training, which is a probably a whole different website, but. <laughs> but suffice to say, sausage training is when you have athletes visualize the part of our, the part of their brain getting thicker and denser and bigger and stronger during those moments where you're thinking, "Oh my God, this is awful. This is terrible. This is I'd never want this to go on," and so on. And and Leslie's actually a really good example of this at the World Championships in Hawaii, the Xterra World Championship. So it's an Olympic distance triathlon, but all off road. So you're mountain biking and trail running. So it takes like twice as long as a road triathlon. The conditions about three years ago were dreadful. They were muddy, and the surf was huge, and everyone was moaning and complaining. And I get that, you know, you wake up, you want the perfect day and you're having to push your bike for two miles. It's not what you think of in a bike race. You're actually walking with it because the mud's too thick. And what Leslie was doing, and she prepared for this adversity, she knew that races are won in under conditions. Who copes with adversity the best? That is the, the sort of the gate for determining usually in big events who's going who's gonna to thrive and perish. And so... Leslie has, over the years, been able to pray and hope for bad conditions because you, no one, everyone feels good with a tailwind, with a downhill, right? Everyone feels good. So you need inclement, I'm just using environmental conditions as one example of this. You need bad conditions for you, for the, the mentally resilient athlete to shine, right? Because everyone is feeling good when everyone feels good or when the conditions are good, everyone's feeling good. So, so she was looking at these opportunities as even though she was, these are terrible and I'm also pushing my bike, but she knew that most of her competition is going to be sort of mentally throwing the towel in and they go into sort of, I just need to survive this versus we talk, we often refer to it as you shift from a competitor mindset to a participant mindset, meaning I'm no longer pushing out to win. I just need to get through this or 
in in sort of age group everyday language this is oh you know i realize because they don't want to get stressed out of the, the fact that they get too nervous in head-to-head competitions or pinning on a number you know the goal was just to enjoy it and you know and all all perfectly fine reasons to participate but that shift in mindset is often the way that we self-sabotage our efforts because we've always gone out when things don't go as well as we want oh i was just doing it it was just a training day and just enjoying it but leslie had recognized early on that the way to win the big events, so not just your average local events, the big world championship, the athletes who cope with adversity and don't just cope with it, they relish them. They look forward to those moments coming. This is a chance for me to separate myself from the rest. And that's why she ended up winning by 10 minutes on that, on the worst conditions that they've had probably at the race ever. And Leslie was able to do that because that's the way that she trains herself. She knows that that adversity, she'd she'd earned the right to do it. So talk to us, yeah, talk to us about this book a little bit, The Brave Athlete, because, you know, when I'm reading the title of it, Calm the Fuck Down and Rise (laughs) to the Occasion, what are, why did, how did you guys come up with that? And, and I know you talk about the, the three different types of brains, so to speak, and I'd love for you to go into that. But how much of it is practice, practice, practice to change the neuroplasticity of how you're handling things and embracing the suck versus changing your narrative when you want to see those things uh, change? Yeah, well, I actually don't distinguish necessarily between changing or, you know, playing a new track uh, for what you want to think and hopefully to impact how you feel and act versus just kind of general, you know, shifts in my, uh, you know, mental preparation or training for something. I think that one of the things that we were, one of the sort of the the scientific underpinnings of our book that you'll never actually see, but it's under the surface, is this notion in psychology We've moved away in the last sort of five to 10 years, moving away from a control model. And I'll explain what that means in a minute to a coping model. And the control model is if I feel X, get rid of X. X doesn't help you. You need Y. So don't think about X. No X, no X. Only Y, only Y. This is the, the, the cliched of looking in the mirror. I'm strong. I know I can. I know I can, right? And so this control, and this is the whack-a-mole approach, right? When you're trying to exorcise negativity, I've got to be positive, and any negative thinking that comes in, bash it on the head and replace it with a positive thought, or, oh my God, I'm nervous, that means I can't, I haven't mastered this ability to be like them, and they just seem to always relish the competition. And so that's the control model. And in fact, there's lots of psychotherapy and psychological tools that are built on that. But the shift now, partly because of neuroscience research, is to a coping model. And a coping model is you learn to jump hand in hand with all of your gremlins or demons or whatever you want to call them, right? Everyone is anxious and the ability for the resilient and the go, it isn't so that they don't have these things. It's just that they are able to run alongside them, to swim alongside them, to jump anyway. And that approach really underpins what we now, how we operationalize being brave. It's the ability to not, not have fear. It's to jump hand in hand with your fear. And this shift in not just in the sort of performance psychology world, but in clinical psychology and psychotherapy, for example, there's a new and a relatively new therapeutic model called acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT. And the whole principle, and it has really good efficacy data about how it helps a whole bunch of different mental health issues. One of the pivotal pieces of it is the acceptance part is that you know, and I, I give the analogy often with athletes is that imagine you're standing on a, on a hill 
and you're looking down at a battle raging beneath you between two sort of medieval Braveheart type armies. And one of those armies, they're all armies in your own head, but you're, one of those sides is the side, the you that you want to be, you wished you were, you hoped to be. And the other side is the, you know, the pathetic side you really are or you feel like, right? And so you think that in order to be happy, I have to, that side has to beat that side. And I can't go on and do these other things, have the relationship I want, the career I want, the, until I've sort of sorted my own shit out right until that battle has been won <laughs> and you could spend your life investing lots of money and time into bigger shields and sharper swords and better tactics but you know what that battle is futile it's probably unwinnable and i say that largely not just because the scientific literature and the biology of trying to have mastery and control over every thought and feeling you have is probably biologically impossible but i've in practical terms i've never met anybody who's able to do it ever like everybody i know even the highest performers are still plagued with an element of doubt or anxiety or things that they're worried about or concerned and they do it anyway and so the instead of looking and standing and trying to over the from that grassy bank and looking down trying to win that battle the skills that we actually need to be teaching are turning away from the battle skill so can you have the confidence and skill to have the the battle raging behind you and just for a day just for an hour focus on the in the opposite direction it's still there i can still it'll still be there when you get back trust me the battle is still going on without you but for a moment can i turn away from that and focus on the things that are going to hopefully build the happy life content confident life i want and so that shift from staring at trying to win versus turning away from and saying i know you're there but i'm just i've got i've got this don't worry that is quite a paradigm shift in psychology and it's a shift for athletes as well and that's really the hallmark of what this brave athlete book is about and and i've learned that but the not the hard way i learned that by experience not by training or academic training because when i was in the field of elites well i still work with elite athlete and professional athletes but working as a team psychologist for a, a elite a tour de france level cycling team and you see that these people who you've seen on television are earning millions of dollars and they are the best of their game and then you talk to them in private you see that they've got all this dealing with all the same shit as everybody else right they're, they're just going faster while they're doing it right and that was a little bit of a revelation for me is and i say that if there was if i could make wave my magic wand for athletes to say what one thing could you do to help people understand about how to get a better grasp of this i would have as you walk down i use an example of a start line in sport you walk to the start line there's hundreds or maybe thousands of people all looking nervous like you you could see little thought bubbles like percolate up above their head and you could read what they were actually thinking and you know what you would see? You would be you'd probably be horrified and scared initially, but you would be comforted because you would think, they do too? Oh my God, it's not just me. And that alone is extremely powerful and comforting that everybody is coping with some level of like gremlin or something on some level. It's just that some people are just very good at hiding it. You never think they have because they're so much faster and more accomplished than you. But everyone is dealing with the same stuff. And that is, it gives me some sort of comfort because I know that we're, you know, at the end of the day, we're all born with the same equipment, the same ingredients, how, what the soup we make out of it, right? And the, how we choose to uh, cook it does have an impact on how we cope with it. But we've all got the same kit. So it's no surprise that everyone is largely dealing with the sort of the same universe of stuff. 
I don't know about Tara, but I feel better already. I, I was I just going to say, I feel a lot more comfortable too there, Simon. <laughs> well, I've actually done a blog post on this where I've talked about this idea of battling my inner demons. And I've also said, you don't extinguish them all. To hear you say that, I'm like, ah, there it is. That was my field research. <laughs> but not to say it's not useful. I think that, that some of them I do extinguish and some of them I just quiet them down, but they're still there. And I know they're not always going to be there. And I know Tara and I have talked about this a lot. So many of our clients when we're coaching, I just had one yesterday uh, of a young leader that said, I don't feel like I belong here. I don't feel like I deserve to be leading anybody. And I said, Hey, everybody feels that way. And so I'm so glad to hear you say that even elite athletes that we think are, you know, on this pedestal and they can do no wrong and, and they've got everything locked down and they don't. <clears throat> so I think that that's a great message for and everybody. Not only, not only do they, do they haven't mastered this because it's a futile attempt to try and master it, but, and I would also say not only should we be not encouraging people to sort of like whack-a-mole them we should actually be talking about them and we should be and you know the old one of the other cornerstones in psychology is that relationships trusted relationships are built on vulnerability and weaknesses not on strengths. so we bond as humans on on weaknesses and vulnerabilities we don't bond on strengths we just get agitated and ego threatened by strengths right so so when you start to and this is great for coaches we do this in our coaching world but you can do this as a, if you're a psychologist or anybody and there's some sort of knowledge hierarchy in a relationship self-disclose your struggles your own struggles with it and many of us don't want to do that because like, they're not going to hire me if they think i i can't even get to grips with this so that's our own chimp brain ego defense mechanism right feelings that we're going to be judged because we can't get a handle on it but actually when you do that you find something quite remarkable happens people open up to you they feel better they oh it's not just me and it gives you a wonderful opportunity and it's obviously empathy at its, at its heart, but it gives you a wonderful entry point for figuring out and discussing how you can, or letting them admit that this is an issue for them, but particularly for the athlete that comes or the coaching client that comes to you like, your arms crossed, what could you tell me? I've been told I need to be here. There's nothing I can learn here, right? <laughs> so, so by doing that and opening up, it can have quite profound impacts. And, and of course, the leadership world and organizational psych world has known this for some time. This is why, this is what like team retreats essentially do or why you go away on these often on the face of it, ludicrous or weird challenges and you get down and dirty together. And because you're seeing people at their most vulnerable, right? Hungry and tired and smelly and bad hair and awful clothes and whatever it is for in that environment. And you end up being stronger because of it. You bond because of it. And there's, I mean, you know, you've only got to look through the training for special forces. That the, the training is about those experiences. If you want to truly, you know, have a group where you will do, you know, it's, it's that the sense of team becomes more important than the self and why that's important in certain events. You need to put yourself in environments where you're all down and like on, you know, struggling and that's when you that's how you build that metal you don't do it through everyone is showing up you know in their fast gear or on the you know when they feel super great or fit so yeah i think that that's a good it's a good lesson for us all all to all to learn how do we bring that 
what you're talking about with special forces and, and, and I can relate to that a little bit. And then Ron, I'm sure you can relate from your sports, your days in baseball, you can create those teams, right? Getting, like you're saying, getting dirty, doing hard things, um, seeing people at their most vulnerable. How do you and Leslie, when you're working with corporations and, and teams through your Braveheart coaching, experiences how do you bring that into the office and now i'm so curious what is your challenge when there's not really an office yeah <laughs> I mean, well everybody's trying of, to create uh, this you know via zoom i know most of our work is now well it's probably always been done virtually anyway right like this we're over zoom or through a video and audio link so you can do that i mean it's not ideal because i always prefer in person for there's lots of reasons why that is too so i think that it's self-disclosure is one thing and one of the things i've learned certainly in psychology is if, if you lead with all of the things that you've struggled with and you don't claim to have all the answers, but I, I often think of it a bit like a facilitator that, listen, I don't know the answers either, but the answers are locked somewhere inside of you. And there are some techniques and strategies to get to help people solve their own problems, but you're just kind of a facilitator of that and methods for that. So I think that's one really key piece. But I think one thing is getting people to open up and tell us the true problem, the, 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 the reality of the things that they're actually struggling with. And it's so hard to get people to do that, particularly if you've got any ology in your title, because they are like, oh, here we go. I'm going to be told this, or you know, what, um, you're going to psychoanalyze me, or you're going to test me. And, and so if you can start off leave that, and I, my sporting, my own personal sporting career is littered with humiliation, embarrassment, and inadequacy. I mean, it, it's a, it's a, I mean, I've had some successes as well, but I've had all those experiences. And, I'll, and I'll, you know, I, I talk about them with our athletes quite a lot. And Leslie has the same. They have more resonance coming from Leslie because she's also achieved the top where I haven't. But I think it's quite comforting to know about other people's struggles when you're trying to get a handle on your own, if nothing else, just to normalize them, right? right. You know, this is probably a battle that you're going to be fighting your entire life. You know, you're never short of a full frontal lobotomy or 10 milligrams of psilocybin every two weeks. There's probably nothing that you can do to truly exorcise, to get rid of that stuff. We just have to come better at saying, oh, you again. I was waiting when you'd show up. Anyway, we're doing this anyway. That's the mindset we're trying to get into, whether it's changing people's relationship with failure, trying to get people to tolerate like just simply discomfort, pain, tough situations. That's the mindset that, that we try and nurture. And I will say that Simon walks uh, walks the walk. I still remember from training camp when you talked about the story of actually letting the tire air out of your tire. <laughs> I know uh, before I, I, a tough race. I'm embarrassed to even. It wasn't even before race. It was during a race. That's how humiliating it was. And so I just upgraded to a category one amateur cyclist, which is the top amateur level, and the. The gap was was from two to a one was pretty pronounced, and it was a criterium, a short, short circuit race. And I was I'd been dropped off the main group, and I was clawing my way, trying to claw my way back. Of course, no real chance of that because a group goes faster than an individual, right? And I thought this is my debut with my new category. This is utterly humiliating. And I had also gone a bit anaerobic too quick and I pulled over and I let my own tires down and I rode around to the pit with a flat tire. And of course then, it, and it wasn't one of these races where you could put in a wheel and wait a lap and stuff. It was like, see, oh man, yeah, I know it was tough. And I, and I never admitted it to anybody until about, about five years. And this was 40 years. I mean, this is a long time ago, not 40 years. It was a long time ago. And I only admitted it. 
And I found that it was like, oh my God, other people have had either versions of a story like that, or they've thought about well, it. Or they thought prayed, about it, yeah. They've prayed for a flat tire, right? They've prayed to something to end their misery. I actually just went one step further and actually did it. Yeah. I, sometimes in the middle of a long run, I, you know, we're out running in the mountains in an ultra marathon, and, I, and, and you know, some people have asked me if I'm afraid of a bear. And I've been in the middle of ultra races where I'm like, I hope a bear comes up and eats me. <laughs> <laughs> just just make it stop. Uh, That'd be my uh, way to, to kind of pull the plug. Well, I'd probably shot, uh, you know, stop short of wishing death on myself. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. You know, well, uh, that's yeah, a lot of discomfort. <laughs> let's let's go back to a word you touched on earlier. I, I know that you've done a, a Facebook Live with your your coaching athletes, and I thought it was fascinating when I listened to it, and I also listened to Andrew Huberman talk about this thing called agitation. And I thought it was fascinating why we feel agitation. What is agitation? And also, I think a lot of people right now during this pandemic are agitated every day. And so what's going on there, Simon? Why are we agitated? What is that? And is that, is that good for us? Yeah, well, in, in a sense, it is good for us because the principle that we spoke about earlier of overload, of stress and strain is the way that we improve and get better with rest, right? So if you've just got continuous stress and strain, we know where that leads to in chronic stress and so on. But if you have these undulating cycles of stress and strain physically and mentally and emotionally, followed by periods of rest or recuperation or recovery or you know, avoidance or getting away from that or it resolves itself, we, we are able to cope with it better the next time. So that's the, first, the principle of that about agitation is it is good for us. It's not some like inconvenience that we would not wish on ourselves. We need to have some level of ag agitation. But it stems from our nervous system, right? And this is now, again, to borrow on some of the neuroscience research is that, and psychologists are, are sort of latching onto some of these ideas quite frenetically because they've been and help us understand so much that psychologists have struggled to explain for so many years is that our brain and our nervous system our spinal cord and our brain really are the sort of the 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 fountain of our entire experience right whether it's from not just the obvious things like what we sense and perceive but also how we think and feel and how we act and so our brain, our nervous system, and if you think about that as the sort of an overarching sort of neural pathways in our body, is that if you want to fundamentally change the way that you think and feel, a starting point is to change your nervous system, your reactivity of your nervous system. And so, yes, there are lots of, and this is probably comes back to Tara's uh, point earlier on about changing the narrative versus changing my body. And there are two different strategies that might work. One is a, a much more of a find and replace with thinking versus if I calm myself down with breath work or meditation or something, am I more likely to be relaxed and calm and be able to persist and endure and so on. And so... The, the starting point is agitation is really reflects our nervous system. And, and I don't, we often, with athletes especially, I don't talk about the autonomic nervous system and parasympathetic and, and sympathetic nervous system. I talk about gas and brake pedals. So our nervous system essentially has two, our autonomic nervous system, our, the part that really is responsible for most of our automatic processes. It has a gas and a brake pedal. And our gas pedal, which is the fight or flight response, if it's taken, if you're really gunning it to the floor, is really what we consider to be agitation or an alertness pedal, right? It's the every time, any time that the body the brain and the body needs to focus to pay attention. It might be studying, it might be running away from something, it might be getting ready for something that's big or important. 
a whole bunch of things happen. Physiological reactions happen in our body to make us prepared to cope with it. And they are all driven primarily by the sympathetic or nerve system or your gas pedal, your alertness pedal, your agitation pedal. So cortisol goes up, noradrenaline goes up, adrenaline goes up, all of these other hormones and neurotransmitters that increase heart rate, blood pressure, pupil dilation, all these factors that, or, and our focus of attention narrows so that we can lose the periphery and we can zero in on, on something. We have this portrait view of the world. They're all symptoms of, of being an alert state. Now, when that alertness gets too high for the task or it just it starts to affect our health, we don't like it, we might feel a bit more like agitated or at least stressed or the, well, that's what we think of the fight or panic at one, one extreme. But that entire, it's a continuum of like being just slightly just uh, uh, feathering the gas pedal to foot to the floor for days on end. And so what we want to try and do is have mechanisms to both know when it's appropriate to push the gas pedal down. I need a gas pedal now, right? I need my gas pedal. An example of this in very practical terms is feeling, you know, your alarm's gone off, you've pressed snooze once, and you're like, oh my God, I can't face getting up. I don't want to. It's dark. It's cold. I just want to stay in bed. My parasympathetic, my calming, my brake pedal, everything is relaxed and calm. And I know I need to just like, you know, summon some something out of somewhere to get myself out into the world. And so you can do this by increasing the level of alertness or agitation in your body by doing things physically that increase, that put the gas pedal down. So breath work is a good example of this. So you can raise your, not just your heart rate and your blood pressure quite quickly, but you can make yourself feel more ready for some, you know, get up and go-ness by doing rapid in, inhalation breaths, right? This is like Wim Hof breathing. You could do a, you can do, you know, cold water immersion is another way to quickly stimulate, quickly put that gas pedal to the floor. Now, you're not going to get out of bed straight into a cold shower, although some people do. Uh, but you can do 10 or 20 very short, sharp, inhale, focused breaths and then get out of bed. It will feel easier to get out of, bread by, breath by do, get out of bed by doing that. And conversely, when we need to, say, put the foot on our parasympathetic nervous system, our brake pedal, so now we need to have noradrenaline and cortisol drop. We need serotonin and dopamine to go up. We need all the, the, the rest and digest system. So that we can also focus on things like our breath or what we focus on with our eyes. We know that the connections with our breath and nerves that connect our diaphragm to parts of neurons in our brainstem, as well as parts of our neural retina, that that layer, epithelial layer, the back of our eyes that connect directly, that our brain tissue that connect to threat detection centers. By focusing our eyes and having a certain sort of pattern of gaze and or a certain breath, halt breath, inhalation and exhalation cycle, we can put a brake pedal on so we can calm ourselves down in the moment. So although those two things are simply nervous system sort of hacks or adaptations or things that we can do that are directly targeting neural biological responses that make us feel better thinking and feeling better and that we haven't even touched the thinking feeling stuff strategies yet that's just the nervous system stuff so i we often start with athletes with techniques that are very action oriented versus thinky feely you know enya drumming and techniques because many people who are who have action oriented lifestyles they don't like sitting down and closing their eyes and imagining, you know, Zen. So you can often start, and you get quick wins this way as well. Like, for example, when we teach this physiologic sigh breath, 
that you could have an impact on how you feel within 15 to 20 seconds. I can make you feel calmer with about in about 15 to 20 seconds. And that as knowing that you can do that is not just important for someone who is about to go into a world championships or someone who is about to give a presentation to 300 people, but it's about someone who's just about to do anything that is scaring the bejesus out of them, right? I, I, I need to, I'm not very, you know, I need to lead a team, but I'm kind of introverted. I don't like leading a team. I don't like confrontation. I've got to speak to my team. I've got to give someone criticism. I've got to give her a performance review and I'm not looking forward to it. I'm going on a first date and I need to be the best version of my girlfriend. I don't love, you know, anytime you're about to cross something threshold of I need to be the best version of me now and I've only got a minute before it happens that's those are the techniques that you prioritize they work very quickly versus the four years of yoga tantric practice <laughs> that, hopefully, <laughs> that hopefully might work when you're 109 no, I'm being facetious there of course it's such a great illustration of the mind-body connection and everything you just said there I mean there's so many things that we can do with our body and you know, on a physiological sense that that will impact the way we think and feel and so uh, I'm glad that you illustrated that and so if I were to sum that up assignment so agitation it's a stressor arousal maybe it's not it's Is not it? a stressor it's a stress response so it's stress a response it's a reflection of our sympathetic nervous system the alert agitation okay. part okay. of our nervous system that's revving all our physiologic systems up to be focused to be reactive if we need to be physically reactive to run to hide to fight or to concentrate right and so we need that process if you didn't have a sympathetic gas pedal alert system agitation system you'd just be like the stoner kid, right? Or whatever. You know, you'd just be, you'd, you'd never do anything. Yeah. Uh, you'd never get anything done, right? You'd, you wouldn't be able to, uh, you know, sit down and, and have a stare at a, a laptop for a few hours and get any a project done because the systems that are helping you stay focused and on track, the biology behind that is not going to be working. So we need that. We need to have, it's just that unfortunately at the moment, most of us are caught with, our gas pedals are down most yeah, of yeah. the time. So that's when we're ruminating and worrying and in this perpetual cycle, it might be anxiety and depression and so on. I think that the key point there, right, is, is we got to let off the gas pedal every now and then. We, I think a lot of people in this pandemic right now have been on the gas pedal for who knows how long. And, well, and, that's, and, and that's bad, right? It is. And one of the things that we've learned to gain, so if you think of adrenaline and noradrenaline, these sort of rev up neurotransmitters, that one of the antagonists to these, the things that stops, not stops them working, but sort of retards them working or attenuates their effect is dopamine, right? So, we, and dopamine is secreted when obviously we do things that we like. It's associated with pleasure, but it's also more importantly, dopamine is about desire and moving towards a goal. But the great example of how dopamine has an antagonistic effect on our sympathetic noradrenaline response is breaking, sort of cracking a joke when things are tense, right? So when we're nervous and anxious, if you crack a joke, it's a dopamine response and it, and it starts and it's having a biological effect on your stress reactivity. And so this is one reason, in fact, why both Leslie and I, we try and have a fair amount of humor in stressful environments. We talk about them in sort of silly terms or we swear or they're all fairly engineered to kind of microdose dopamine during sort of adrenaline-focused activities. And in fact, now some of the even newer research I'm talking about in the last year or two has found 
that there's a quit reflex in the brain. I don't know if you've come across some of this research, Ron, yourself. There's a quit reflex. We think, we've only looked at we. This is the royal we, of course. It's not me personally, the scientific community. We've found that when levels of noradrenaline in the brain, noradrenaline is secreted in the brain as well, not just in, obviously, adrenal glands, but in the, in the brain. When noradrenaline levels get so high in a certain area of our brain, we don't have to worry what that part is for the now, it sends a signal to the motor cortex to sort of like shut down and stop, right? So in other words, when noradrenaline reaches a level that's so high, it initiates a quit reflex. And in mice, we know this is they, they freeze or they just they stop dead or they just, you know, they might run high in the opposite direction, they go in the wrong direction, but ultimately they'll stop. Humans often know this, not as sort of they, we literally freeze, but we just like, you know, and then I just, I just couldn't be bothered anymore. I just didn't want to do it anymore. I just stopped. Well, why did you, do you remember what was going through your head? No, I just like, I just had this overwhelming desire to just quit, right? That's what it feels like. And so when we have athletes who talk about, I've got a quitting problem, we, we try and differentiate between the shit quits and the legit quits, as we say, you know, like what's when you actually should be quitting because you're actually hurting yourself or versus you just need to push through it. You're being a bit of a wimp. Come on. So the techniques that we use to help that, overcome that, are all microdosing dopamine as an antagonist to noradrenaline that's forcing the quit reflex. So, so you know, uh, how do I microdose myself with dopamine under high conditions of stress? Well, one is to, when you, if you have a chance as, uh, as a crew member, if you're, or, or you're, you know, you're working with someone who's in the stress and you interact with them occasionally, be you see them being serious and be them like, if you can break that with some level of levity or joke, that is going to help. Not taking things too, not taking yourself too seriously uh, is really important. Having rewards, segmenting that strategy of having something at frequent intervals to look forward to in the context of a, I'm out here for nine hours or 10 hours, but what every 30 minutes I've got this little thing that I can't wait to do. That's microdosing yourself with dopamine, which is actually not just, we're just sort of trying to help it feel good. Yeah. It's actually brain chemistry to reduce, to keep these levels of noradrenaline down and so that it works. And it's the same, I mean, in some ways, you know, when we look at people who choke in team sports and, you know, the, the slapping around the face, snap out of it, like cliche, is actually for good reason now. We know that obviously focusing on when you choke or you're distracted or you're in your own head, we need to get people out of their own head. So some sensory experience a slap around the face forces me to be, what are you doing? What are you, what are you doing? Or look into my eyes. I want you to follow my breathing now. People who've had panic attacks, you're trying to help them come down. Breathe in time with me. Keep looking at me. We're doing that to get them out of their own head. And then you start to give them up things to look forward to or say, see, we've already done this, right? You've done great. You've already done two minutes of this and you feel better. So you're trying to get that shift and that is changing brain chemistry, which is changing the ability to ultimately persist and get back out there. Oh, this is like mine and Ron's bag of endless potato chips right now. I don't want to even end this podcast. Simon, being a professor of mental toughness, we are we got to ask you our signature question, which is uh, mental toughness, resilience, and grit. For the average everyday person, how do we implement it? If we are not the athletes that you're used to working with <laughs> or the CEOs of corporations, how do we incorporate these three things into our daily lives, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously... Most of us, in fact, I would say, do experience it, with, and we just might not 
call it that, right? So any chance that, for example, one of the things that stresses or at least depletes, we call it ego depletion, this anterior cingulate cortex, is making decisions, right? So there's one thing. You, you, the more decisions you have to make is more checks that you're writing from the account that's going to help you put up with the hour run that you're about to do, right? So, so the one thing is that most of us, our, our daily lives are peppered with things that test our willpower, metal, whatever. Some of them are on fairly small levels and so on. But what I would say to, and the reason I say that is because the human condition needs agitation and stress to be able to improve. So it's a, it's a, it's a function of our, of our sort of hardwired, you know, mother nature has given us. And if you don't have it, we'll, our brains will seek it out for you, right? You'll, you'll look for opportunities to do this. Why, this is one of the theories behind why kids seek out play opportunities that have quite a high level of risk. This is the climbing trees and all doing this stuff where the mums and dads are like, oh my God, what are you doing? Get down. And kids are learning some of these lessons along the way. And, and they're serving a, an evolutionary purpose so that they are uh, more able to cope with that down the line. But, but for everyday people, I would say, start to have a, a fundamental uh, change in the way that you look about adverse or circumstances that suck, right? So rather than thinking, I've just got to get through it, I don't want, this isn't good for me, this is hurtful, this is painful, look at them as opportunities, the type two fund. They're not going to be nice now, but trust me, you'll thank me for this. This is the sort of the approach. So when you start to say, okay, what sort of opportunities can I have? What are the things that I'm kind of, are uh, is out of my comfort zone? And for some people, it might be simply just showing up to a a group for something, right? Because I don't really, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't want them to see that I'm not very good. It could be sport. It could be a hobby. We're not really doing that much, obviously, now in, in COVID. But what that outside the comfort zone looks like for you, and we can usually get at that quite clearly just by talking to people and asking them to explain things that they feel comfortable and not and where their anxiety levels are. And then trying to have, so think of them like one to 10 scales. My 10s are, you know, dinner karaoke, dinner theater, participatory, this is me, dinner participatory theater where I might be called on and then have to finish the night with karaoke. Right, that is my <laughs> That's worst my night fear. The fear. That's, That's my worst fear. Like those two things together. Together. And so that might be my 10. And so, but I'm going to have things that are my nines, my eights, my sevens, my sixes. And my life is about fours, or I love my fours. But I need to, this is the systematic decentralization model, is that the, the way that you get better at things, you gradually up the stakes each time. So I, want, I need to know what my fives are. My fives might simply be, you know, joining a group where I'm a beginner, right? And mm. oh my God, I've been, usually in my life, I've been, have some expertise. I'm never usually a beginner in something. And that's, ah. oh my God, so I'm going to, and one of the things I've done is I've started to learn the piano and I've, I'm terrible and I've growth mindset. I can be better. I'm not good at this yet. All the things that we tell ourselves, you know, but so that's my fives. My sixes might be then to do uh, a little recital for Leslie and some friends or, you know, or my family. Oh, listen to this song I play. I'm going to play for you. All right. That's a six versus just taking a lesson online, which is a five. And I, and I, I'm just using my piano as a silly example, but I would have something for each of these, my fives, my six, my seven, right up to tens. And I'd like to see people saying, okay, know that your fives and people who have chronic anxiety might love to live in twos, but they're really not. So just go one or more, have experiences that are one or two numbers above where you're usually comfortable and get used to doing that on a more routine basis. And for some people, it might be if you're standing in line waiting for something, 
spark up a conversation with the person in front of you. Oh my God, that, I can never do that. They're going to be like, well, why are you, why are you speaking to me? Why are you? That might put, if you're an introvert, that might put you out of your comfort zone. But doing something like that might be the, your version of the 50K run, right? Out in the woods to, to do it. So it's finding things that just put you out of your, yeah, I now know I'm firmly in the five now. I know this is definitely a six now. And that is different for everybody. So trying to figure out what that is for you and then making sure that you do it. I need to have five sixes in my week. I'm going to try one every day where I'm out of my comfort zone in some shape or form. And that, that, those sorts of little lessons can be really helpful. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.